0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, an instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. I'm joined today by Jerry Seppos, the William B. Dickinson Distinguished Professor of Journalism and former dean of the Manship School of Mass Communication at Louisiana State University, and the editor of Covering Politics in the Age of Trump, a collection of essays by working journalists published in 2021 by LSU Press. Jerry, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hey, thank you very much. I enjoy being here.
1: So uh, before we dive into some of what's in the Book. I, I know that you also spent several decades working in in newsrooms yourself. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about your experience covering politics, and perhaps if working on this project made you reflect on it a little bit more as you were reading all these essays from folks who are in the field today.
0: Well, it absolutely did that. Uh, but I'll back up and and uh, tell you uh, my history uh, very briefly, which is that um, I was. Um, Uh, executive editor of the San Jose Mercury News, um, and later uh, vice president for news of a company called Knight Ritter, which um, owned San Jose, uh, and at the time was the second largest newspaper company, unfortunately is no longer in business. Uh, Later, uh, journalism education had always excited me, Uh, so I uh, was asked to become dean of the uh, journalism school at uh, the University of Nevada, Reno, and uh, later moved um, to um, Louisiana to become the Dean uh, here. And um, lots of uh, professional uh, involvement. And a lot of it really did did involve the question of uh, how how should how should we report politics? Uh, what should we be doing? How candid should we be? Uh, and you know, in the in the uh, easy olden days, when we didn't have uh, the complexities that we have now, it would be silly questions such as, um, should we correct a candidate's uh, grammar when we, when we quote the candidate? Uh, and now, obviously, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think the real question is, how far do we go in uh, declaring that a candidate uh, famously uh, lied? Do we use the word lied? Um, my preference happens to be to perhaps describe what happened rather than to put a label like a lie on it. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, the public is aware of um, of all those uh, idiosyncrasies. And uh, after the book came out, it occurred to me, and this had not really popped into my mind earlier, that maybe the book would be a chance for the public to understand uh, how a reporter's mind, how an editor's mind works, uh, which is in... In, in 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 very complicated ways, but I hope I hope that the book did that.
1: Yeah, and I, and I want to definitely come back and and touch on some of those themes. Themes there is there is also a current in the book of how reporters interact with their readers and their audience. Sort of some of the the promise and the peril of of how that approach is changing the way journalism is done, and and those kinds of things. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, can you talk a little bit about? Um, how you, uh, found the, the folks to, to write about this, some of the, you know, what types of outlets you considered and how you convinced reporters to do it. I mean, one, because they're very busy. Um, but also you say that, you know, journalists don't always like to write about themselves or be reflective. They're just sort of going from one story to the next, to the next. So how did you find the folks who ended up in here and, you know, what was your, your pitch to them?
0: Well, I had a wish list of the people I wanted to approach. um, And part of the wish list came from journalists I know. And probably half or something like that of the authors are folks that I've worked with over a period of, I don't know, I say that I've spent 50 years in journalism. So somewhere over that period, I've worked with a lot of them. And I would ask some of them, hey, add to my wish list, take a look at it, what do you think? And one thing I wanted to do was to get a good gender balance. I wanted to get um, uh, some uh, uh, ethnic and racial diversity, um, uh, both of which ended up to be very easy. Uh, I wanted to get a variety of um, outlets uh, because now it's not just calling the newspaper reporter. It might be calling the online reporter, certainly the TV reporter, uh, magazine writers. Uh, and um, I, I probably um, I probably uh, talked to... Um, I'm taking a wild guess, maybe uh, 50 or 60 journalists to get the 24 who wrote for the book. But as it turned out, the 24 who were intrigued by it and all said they found it interesting and exciting, and time was the reason they said, some of the people said they couldn't do it. But we ended up uh, getting people like uh, Ashley Parker, the uh, White House bureau chief of the Washington Post. My old friend Charlie Cook from the Cook Political Report, um, from uh, broadcast uh, several people, Major Garrett of CBS, Paul Farhi, the uh, media columnist for the Washington Post, media reporter for the Washington Post, who had a really interesting outlook because he's sort of inside and tries to do some of this uh, along the same lines. Uh, Mark Leibovich then from the New York Times Magazine, so a, a wide variety of reporters and I must say that I have never, uh, in those 50 years of journalism, I've never had such an easy time editing, because these are uh, people who write fluidly, and they're used to writing on deadline, and they actually met their deadlines, which uh, for a journalist is quite, quite amazing. So it was an interesting collection of people. Um, some of them were quite critical of journalism, which I was glad to get in the mix. And all of them told personal stories about what it was like to, as the title says, cover politics in the age of Trump, because his campaigns uh, were unlike any other in, in the history of presidential reporting.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one thing I did not see and you you did you did a nice job there of sort of outlining some of the different outlets and the different reporters you covered. But one thing I, I did not see was anyone from conservative or right wing media, uh, you know, Fox News or even perhaps outlets farther to the right of that. I'm wondering if that was something you considered or if, how, if at all that story might have fit into this, this picture you were trying to paint with the book?
0: Well, I, I made the decision to stick to um, uh, mainstream uh, outlets. So that uh, narrowed it down mm-hmm. some. Uh, however, uh, writers like Selena Zito uh, usually write for conservative audiences. So I think that we had a, uh, uh, a representation there. Um, Alexis uh, Simoninger. Uh, actually was in the Trump administration briefly. Uh, So she also brought a bit of a conservative voice to it. But you know what's interesting? Uh, uh, Sitting back and looking at the overall content, uh, I had trouble deciding uh, who's liberal and who's not. This was focused on journalism more than on what the candidate was saying, if that makes sense. Uh, So I think uh, everyone managed to... uh, the way that we do in everyday journalism managed to put their partisanship away, uh, and particularly because they were focusing on the process, on how the sausage is made, uh, mm-hmm. rather than on uh, the guts of the campaign. Uh, I, I think we were able to avoid partisanship. Mm
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, you know, speaking of that, how the sausage is made, uh, there the quote from uh, marty baron of of The Washington Post, "Are we at war or are we at work?" Or that question comes up several times. I, I can recall it in at yeah. least two of of the essays. Perhaps it's in more. But um, why, I guess what what is it about this particular time or this this moment that you think that that made that particular, metaphor so relevant or something that so quickly came to everyone's minds?
0: Well, because I think we've never had a, a candidate uh, like Donald Trump. Uh, we've never had campaigns like the ones he ran. I mean, when when the candidate you're covering says you are the enemy of the people, you the media are the enemy of the people, you've really got to say to yourself, uh, okay, I'm going to report that quote. And I'm going to report it as objectively and fairly as I possibly can. Uh, and that you know that leads into the controversies that you were talking about earlier. Uh, just how fair should that reporting be? Should there be a separate sentence saying never before, if I'm correct about that, uh, never before has a candidate said the press is the enemy of the people? Uh, should that uh, that just occur to me at <laughs> this moment but should that sentence be in a story? Uh, I don't know the answer, but I finally have been pulled myself, uh, screaming and yelling, to the point of view uh, that uh, the media should have done more to report how unusual uh, these campaigns were, and then during the presidency, how unusual the presidency was. Um, I'm an old-fashioned, uh, tell-it-the-way-it-is the way journalist, the way it is can be defined uh, differently. And I wish that um, uh, probably all the media had stepped back and said, should we be as exactly down the line as we have been? Um, and, uh, And I don't know the answer to that question.
1: Right. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of, of, scholars or people who are not doing this work day to day, it seems obvious, right? Like, well, of course, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you having exerting more of a a moral voice, as some put it, or, you know, acting more directly in service of of democracy is another way that I I hear it framed. Um, But can you help shed some light on that from from a journalist's perspective, both from your own experience and from what you heard through the essays in this book about, you know, why perhaps that might not be as easy as, as somebody who is just looking at these things from an outsider's point of view might, might believe it to be?
0: Well, yeah, for journalists um, of my generation, when you've been trained and it's hammered into you, and then you've hammered into younger people, that you should be absolutely objective. Uh, whatever that means, uh, it's hard to switch gears and to and 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 to write what you're talking about in the newsroom, as you know, the newsrooms are full of uh, gossips and and uh, people who like to talk to each other, and I guarantee you that in in the background, the the noise in the newsroom is oh my god, I can't believe that President Trump said this, or I can't believe that he called us the enemy of the people, and then we go we put on our ties if we store ties, um, and, and leave all that out and just write it in very black and white terms. And I, uh, I worry about that. and think we probably shouldn't have done that now take very current times. And there's some Twitter dialogue about this, uh, in the last few days. Um, our, our journalists, um, uh, applauding too loudly for the Ukrainians. Again, I I don't know it. I don't know if it's come up before as a subject, but it is interesting, especially on cable news, much of the talk is, wow, I'm glad the Ukrainians, and it's almost said this bluntly, I'm glad the Ukrainians managed to take out those Russian planes. Um, is that going too far? Um, I, I, I think it probably is. Interesting though, Interestingly, though, it probably reflects the audience. I'm not sure about that. But most Americans seem to be pro-Ukrainian uh, right now. If the war goes on for a long time, I don't know if they'll be that way. And if the war goes on for a long time, should the media be saying, wow, we know everybody was in favor of the Ukrainians? Mm-hmm. But for how long can we go through this? And the president, um, uh, a few hours before this interview, uh, said, I need to warn you to the American public, it's going to be a long slog. Um, Are we going to change our minds? And should we tell people if we change our minds? Uh, I I don't know. But I I feel good that the debate's being held. um, And I feel good that almost all of mainstream media is now breaking out of its um, uh, straitjacket and is being more willing to take that tentative extra step to tell the public that unusual things are happening.
1: Do you think that that newsroom's taking these steps that, that you've just described sorry, to, to take off this straitjacket as you, you framed it? I mean, how do you think about that in relationship to trust in the media, which we know uh, is is low and you know at best stagnant if not going down depending on on who you ask. Do you think that taking some of these these steps might help to increase trust that people have in in the in the media?
0: I worry about that a lot, and I think it could go either way. Um, supposedly, a lot of people on Twitter uh, w- want to want to hear more of the. of of what's really happening instead of the black and white uh, reporting that we usually do. Uh, But I easily could see a case where people go a little bit too far and folks, especially on the right say, ah, told you so. You guys no longer are hiding it. You're right out there favoring one side or the other. So I worry about, about it a lot. uh, And I would very carefully and cautiously say that, Um, we probably should stick to our knitting and uh, I I hate to say this, but um, not worry every day about what the public is saying. Worry more about the overall view. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now, uh, cable news ratings supposedly are going through the roof because of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Well, that tells you there's interest in the subject. That's good. But I probably wouldn't take a giant poll to say right now, how are we doing on Ukraine or whatever the subject is. Um, But I think if we uh, try to do our best, and that includes, in my mind, going a cautious step further than we have been, um, I don't think it will hurt the public's view of us and it might well help us.
1: Right, And that gets to this idea of, of audience, which I'm kind of fascinated with. It seems like there's, on the one hand, we know more about, our audiences who's reading us watching us listening to us than we ever have thanks to digital analytics and all of this but uh, uh, kind of another theme that i i got from the book was that reporters maybe also seem to know less about who is actually like what the what the people are we know like the numbers and the metrics but we don't know as much about the people there's more of a disconnect you know, the, the line that comes up sometimes is Twitter is the assignment desk and that's sort of the lens people have. There's more more of a disconnect between, you know, journalists and the and the communities that they're they're covering. Um, how it, can you just talk about some of the, the, the ways that the, the reporters in this book are, are thinking through some of those questions? Maybe any any reflections you have on that question after you know, taking them all together?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned modern analytics because I remember a time in the last 15 years, I think, when at the Miami Herald, which was owned by the same company I worked for and, and I worked there a long ago, the Miami Herald would shoot pictures of some readers and post them around the newsroom and then have the readers' comments underneath. And I will guarantee you that was not done in any scientific way, to my knowledge, uh, and you're right, we're, 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 we're so much um, uh, more advanced right, right now, um, thanks to uh, modern analytics. Uh, I think one important thing to think about uh, is that finally the makeup of, of, of the, the press corps, the makeup of the media, uh, is changing. I would say it's changing dramatically uh, in terms of diversity. Uh, some other people I respect would say it's changing at a snail's pace. Uh, Whichever of us is right, it is changing. And uh, uh, the top editors of many newspapers now um, are not white males like myself. Um, And I think that is probably, I know it's cliche, but it's probably the best way to learn more about your audience is to make sure that you have the audience represented. Now, what that doesn't do probably is to, is to, consider why people are not reading or why they're not watching. And as I said, right now, I think there's interest in the world, um, but that easily could fade if it turns out to be as long a war as the president said. Um, and I, 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 don't think we fully understand why some people, many people just don't care. And that probably bothers me most of all, because we have a core audience And some of that core likes us, some doesn't like us, but at least they pay attention to us. So the ego is not permanently damaged, but I think we know very little about the people who don't care. And that, um, and that worries me a lot.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Maybe an interesting line of research for others to, to pick up on or to try to learn more about. Absolutely. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I thought as I was, reading this, there are several stories, particularly toward the beginning of the book that talk about the out on the campaign trail with Trump and the events and the and the rallies and all of these things. And then there are are two kind of bigger takeaways that I had from reading these stories. I mean, one is that, uh, you know, in some ways, even though, you know, media and the types of media have changed so much in the past couple of decades, the, the process for covering candidates, particularly presidential candidates, is still by and large the same, where there's the traveling press corps, they go out and cover the stump speeches, and it's the same thing every day, for the most part. And it, it, and Trump in some ways exploited that because he knew that. And so he would always try to say something outrageous that would get, get attention and all the rest of it. And so I, I just wonder if, there, if you see perhaps that there needs to be a change in how we cover candidates, particularly presidential candidates, as, as we head into, you know, the next round of election cycles here, given that, you know, everybody has the news at their fingertips all the time, or at least the the capacity to have it at their fingertips. It's not like you have to wait until a candidate comes to your town and find out what they have to say.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, um, I remember uh, working at the Miami Herald, and I confess, I don't even remember what president it was who came to town and on his way out of town, um, uh, a rock or two was thrown at him. And I remember, and I respect the Associated Press and have tons of friends there and, 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 and love the organization, but I remember that that night the AP did what, what we all kind of did, and they topped or rewrote the top of the story to say, oh, my God, um, a rock was thrown at the president. And the reason they did that was it, it was the most recent thing that had happened. Earlier stories probably had led with his, with the stump speech. And now this was a new thing. So uh, without being frantic about it, but that was the lead. And I thought, wow, that was for so the Miami Herald reporters on the scene. said, "Oh yeah, by the way, this happened. And we'll, maybe we'll mention it in the story, but there, it was no big deal. Um, and I, I, uh, think and hope that we have gone uh, beyond that reporting of the last thing that happened being the most important thing that happened. So I think we've, I think we've gone beyond that. Um, I think that most reporters would be disappointed if all their stories read the same, if their competitors' stories read the same as theirs did. But I think there's a little bit less attention to the stump speech that probably uh, frustrates candidates, but I think most journalists are now saying, "Wait, everybody heard that, and they might have heard it hours ago, and that's part of new media, as as you said." So I, I think we're trying to go beyond that um, when it's when it's uh, when it's possible to to do that. Uh, but uh, my favorite uh, parts of the book were those that dealt with. Um, Uh, being uh, cited uh, from the stage uh, and being called out by candidate Trump. Um, And I was just imagining how um, uh, frightening or off-putting that must be to uh, uh, younger reporters, uh, or actually to any reporter. Think about it. You're covering a story, and the guy in the front is saying, ah, where is is, uh, that Haberman person from the New York Times? Where's that Parker person from the Washington Post? And I told Ashley Parker of the Post that she uh, won, uh, won the prize for having uh, the best uh, lead, the best first sentence uh, to her installment, which was, they say you always remember your first period. And um, despite what is flashing through your mind, uh, what she meant was you always remember the first time you're called out by the president of the United States. Um, And she then went on to say how she had to focus, even though she said she was blushing, she had to focus and write the story and not let that um, um, uh, uh, damage her reporting. And imagine how tough that would be. Uh, uh, I've been in the business a lot longer than she was at that moment. And I I don't know what I would have done. Uh, she She had another fun reaction. Uh, There were, I think, paper signs hanging from the press tables, and she took down the sign that said Ashley Parker, then of the New York Times, because she didn't want the world to know that she was the person being called out. So uh, uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think we're trying to go a little further. And and this goes back to the question of, are you just going to report what the candidate says? It's all part of the same debate. And I think almost everybody would tell you now that they want to report more than just what the candidate said. And to take that tentative extra step to say, whoa, reader, you ought to know this is quite unusual.
1: This goes beyond just, you know, mocking or or, or, or taunting or these types of things. I mean, there are real threats of physical violence that these reporters have faced. Did you, did you work with any of the, the folks who contributed essays to this to, to talk about like how much to say about this or, you know, how, how, how to frame it maybe, or, you know, how to think about it within the larger context of the the work that they're doing.
0: Actually, I didn't, and I probably should have. Um, I, I gave them very little direction because I didn't want everybody writing the same thing. And I thought I'm dealing with two dozen of the most creative people in the country so let's, let's let us let's see for a first go-round. And as I said, the first go-round ended up being the final go-round because the writing was so interesting and the stories were so interesting. Uh, on second thought, I should have asked them about security. Uh, I believe someone, maybe Rebecca Buck uh, then of CNN, talked about security being hired by their news organizations. And imagine how freaky that is. I mean, that even when you went into riot situations, that didn't happen when I was when I was coming up the editorial ladder and, uh, and you're right. And, and you know, that, that would also have an influence, could have an influence on your writing. And I think you would try to shut that out and to say, just because I have a security guard here doesn't mean I'm in mortal danger. Doesn't mean one rock in Miami is going to affect my, my writing, but that's a great question. If the other have additional, if I have.
1: <laughs> wonderful, yeah, and I mean, let's you know, knock on wood that that's not a, con- yes. a a continued thing. I I hope that it's not a conversation we're we're continuing to have moving forward.
0: Yes. Um,
1: another dilemma that I think journalists are are facing or, or or sort of grappling with is this notion of how much they themselves become part of the story, you know, particularly the, you know, political reporters for the major outlets, people like Ashley Parker or or Maggie Haberman or other people from the Times, the Post, the Wall Street Journal, et cetera. Right. You know, it's it's fairly common now for them to also have, you know, gigs on cable news as as analysts or they go on, they they write a story, they go on TV to talk about the story, they go on a podcast to talk about the story. Uh, and that's something that strikes me as, as relatively new in, in the world of of political coverage and maybe has some pros and some cons. Um, you know, how, um, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've talked to a few editors about that who say to me, well, first, I don't know that I could stop it if I wanted to, because they are free people who can do whatever they want. Um, uh, second, the editors I've talked to and I, both agree, and I hope the book does this also, that, that it, it's good to, to probe a little bit and to see how these people think and to see that they're normal human beings and they're not terrible people. Um, I would live in fear, I confess, uh, that one of my reporters might go further than I wanted him or her to go. Uh, but, but we're used to being careful the way we write and I, I actually can't remember an ins- instance, I'm sure there have been some, where a reporter uh, embarrassed uh, his, his or her employer by going a little further and saying, gee, I think the president's an, I- an idiot. Not many people would do that. And it hasn't happened. And by and large, I think I think that it's a good thing because uh, it does show them as, as, as human beings. And that's what we are. And I'd mm-hmm. like the public to understand that. And, and some of the essays really get at that. Um, um, one, um, one essay uh, dealt with. Um, uh, he may not even have been candidate Trump at that point, but with uh, Donald Trump uh, inviting a reporter to fly down with him to Mar-a-Lago. And um, the reporter um who is actually uh, absolutely brilliant. McKay Coppins of the Atlantic who's a beautiful writer ended up writing a story that, um, uh, Mr. Trump did not like. And according to McKay Coppins, his background even was investigated by people that Trump had hired. And there was a, basically a campaign to, to get him. Um, and, uh, I don't know if McKay had ever written that before this, um, but I thought, you know, it's OK for the public to see what crazy things happen and how, um, how, how the people we're writing about sometimes overreact. And anything that uh, demystifies the process of journalism, I think, has to be good. And as you know, we've been very bad at that over the years. And I think we're doing, we're doing more and more of that now. and I think that's a good thing. Uh, In the Ukraine, um, you know, there's been some remarkable um, uh, personalized, if that's the right word, reporting. Uh, And again, some of it gets to the edge talking about the horrible scenes that the reporters have seen. But I felt like it brought the conflict to life, but it also brought the reporters to life. And, you know, even if they did show um, a bit of... um, emotion about the horrible scenes they're they're seeing, um, that, that, that's okay. It told me more than a very straight report would have done. And if you think back into journalism history, um, we, we, we've seen in, in World War II, we saw just a few reporters who became famous by writing about the common GI. Uh, I think that added to the public's understanding of World War II. And I think the same thing happens in Ukraine. And on the campaign trail, I think the same thing happens, too. You know, the the famous campaign book, uh, as you know, The Boys on the Bus, uh, got into some of that. However, it perpetuated the image, possibly an accurate image, that everybody hung out together, everybody got drunk together. And I I saw that um, Walter Mears of the AP died recently, probably the most famous campaign reporter of this generation. And uh, although I knew Walter, I never knew this happened on the campaign trail. Uh, He was such a good journalist. So when people were stuck and thinking, you know, what was the most important thing that happened? They would yell out, Walter, what's the lead to this story? I thought, "Ugh, ugh, I wish that hadn't happened. And it does perpetuate the idea that we're all we have a little cabal and we're all sitting on the bus together. Um, And I think that's probably a bad image I have. Zero doubt that it was accurate, uh, but I think it's, it's probably a bad image, and I, I would prefer, even if we're going to drink together after the event, I would prefer that we do our reporting <laughs> separately.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, another... Uh... Trope perhaps of of journalism in the in the Trump era something I've seen referred to as Trump safari journalism like going out to places in rural America to find Trump supporters this is the you know going to to diners in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio and all the rest of it but you there are, are are several chapters in the book that talk about some of that reporting that you know reporting that happens outside of of washington or outside the direct periphery of of the candidates um what what did you learn or you know in in what ways perhaps do the does the the essays do these essays uh, in that part of the book maybe prove that stereotype wrong or help to dispel some of those myths about how we're covering everyday people in this era
0: yeah i, I find it interesting because several of the essayists uh um, including uh, Ginger Gibson now at an NBC and a graduate of LSU's Mansion school, by the way. Um, Ginger wrote about the best place to uh, interview people is in the Walmart parking lot and had some hilarious instances where somebody was so upset he, about the press that he let a shopping cart crash into a car. Um, and on Twitter right now, there's uh, much kidding that I find irritating that uh, the New York Times uh, covers campaigns by sending somebody to a diner. The diner in Ohio is the trope that I've been seeing this week. Um, uh, I think uh, think there probably ought to be more diners in Ohio. Maybe we could get away from diners. But there, there could not, despite what the elitists on Twitter are saying, there could not possibly be anything wrong with talking to voters. I mean, that's the idea. The things I would watch out for Uh, there's probably not analytics on what diner has, which kinds of voters. So if I were doing it, I would try to get a mix of voters. And I would also say on, 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 on the diner trail, I hope it's not just older white journalists who are in there. Uh, I hope it's people who look like the other people in the diner, just all sorts of folks, but I don't see anything wrong with that. And in fact, if you're not talking to voters, what in the world are you doing in, in journalism? Uh, and to some extent, polling, which is also criticized a lot, polling uh, does the same thing. And I don't know that I've ever admitted this. So here's a scoop. Um, but I find horse race polling, which is highly criticized today, fascinating. And um, uh, I like to see how it changes over time and how one speech can change it and then bring it back to where it was. Um so I th- I think any way whether it's a diner or a poll that you can talk to real live voters is is great. What could be wrong with it?
1: Right. Oh, yeah. On the on the the polling front, and thank you for that that scoop. By the way, um, oh, I will recommend welcome. a book to you and maybe anybody else out oh. there uh, called Lost in a Gallup. It's about actually polling failure in presidential oh. elections out from the uh, University of California Press. So,
0: oh, thank you. Uh
1: yeah. Um. So, you know, you mentioned at the, the beginning of our conversation that some of these practices are, you know, they they start to be learned, of course, in journalism schools and then trickle out into the, the professional world. I know there there are um, essays in the book as well that 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 take up this question of how we teach about journalism and, and how that needs to, to change along with the changes that are happening in in the industry um, so, what what do you hope that journalism educators take from this book?
0: Uh, well, first, I hope that they take um, ethics seriously. Um, and another confession: I uh, uh, teach media ethics among my courses. Um, but um, um, if if we're expanding the boundaries a little bit and getting out of the straitjacket, I think it's a time it's time to put on the ethics hat and to make sure that we're not going too far in, in taking off the straight jacket. Um, and in ethics classes around the country, there are case studies looking at situations where people have journalists have gone too far. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I would also say that I hope, um, and you've heard this from other journalism educators, and I'm sure you've said it yourself. Uh, I hope that, um, Educators spend a lot of time on writing. Uh, that's what journalists should know how to do first. And um, like every um, uh, gray-haired uh, former journalist, I lament some of the writing that I see. Uh, and again, the wonderful part of editing this book was that I didn't have to edit it because the writing was so fluid. Uh, and maybe that's one reason that people aren't reading us, because I can't stand our writing. I would say writing and ethics are, are two of the ideas. And uh, the third one, again, part of ethics is, uh, are, are are we serving our readers as well as we could? And do we need to take seriously or more seriously the idea of going a little bit further in explaining to to the world what's happening?
1: Yeah. You know, that makes me think of, this notion, it's it's called several different things. I think it started in the in the nineties as civic journalism, and yeah. today it's called engagement journalism yeah. or community center journalism. And you know, the, the idea being that, you know, readers or or the audience has a more direct say in how stories are covered in the sort of news agenda setting process, you know, what's newsworthy or what's not. Um, how, if at all, do you see some of those aspects fitting in here. Do you, do you think it's applicable to something like national politics or is it perhaps best served on a more local or, you know, community level?
0: Funny that you asked that in the ethics book that I use, there was a case study of a reporter who um, um, engaged by getting very close to, to homeless people ended up having a homeless person over to her house for Thanksgiving and my traditional uh, antenna went up, and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's going too far, and then invited some homeless people to live with her, and I think I probably scared my class half to death when I said, you don't do that. So um, I, first, I'm never positive what people mean by engagement journalism. Uh, I do think there should be some kind of a barrier between us and our subjects, In, unless we say to the reader, listen, I am embedding with a homeless family for two years. I'm going to tell you everything that they did. It's like some of those early TV shows did living with a family that was in turmoil and was a screwed up family. Anyway. Um, I I find myself wanting to draw the line there somewhere and I'm not sure engagement journalism is the only, only way to, to reach people. Um, but I, you know, on the other hand, I'll just flip around and say that I do, um, Uh, hypocritically worry about the fact that most of us, at least pre-COVID when we could socialize, socialize with people like ourselves. A lot's been written about that. Socialize with politicians. Uh, I've told my students that uh, invariably they are going to end up either dating a politician or dating a fellow journalist or having a conflict somewhere and suggesting ways to avoid it. I'm not sure I've come up with one. Um, I, I wish that in our off time we made our comfort zones a little bit bigger and hung out with people who really do have to worry about how they're going to spend four or five dollars for a gallon of gas. Um, uh, I picked up and then uh, put back down at the grocery store store right before uh, we talked today um, uh, a, a little cup of mixed berries that look good and um, I actually looked at the price tag, which I don't usually do, and it was $11 for this little plastic. And you know what? I put it down, uh, (laughs) being chided by my wife about things I am willing to spend for. But how many of us know people who have to look at the price tag at at the grocery store? Um, And I I worry that we don't hang out with people like that.
1: Right. Well, I mean, that could lead us to a whole other conversation about you know, pay disparities. I, I bet people working for local newspapers probably have those. those I bet you're right. Um, but we, we won't we won't go down that path today, although I, I think we could definitely say the same about people who work in the academy. Right. You know, socializing with each other. And it's sort of yep. another closed loop system, so to speak. Um, yep. But, you know, so it's uh, as we start to bring things to a close here, Jerry, it, it seems at least as we record this now in March of 2022, that, you know, Donald Trump is is positioning himself to run for president again in, in 2024. Um, was was that on your mind at all as you were putting this together in the the fact that, you know, how to what extent is this book not just a, a reflection on the, the first Trump presidency and, and campaign, but how much it might be a, a jumping off point or, or a playbook in some way for what might be to come over the next couple of years.
0: I was thinking about it more as the journalism to come rather than whether uh, Donald Trump would come back. Part of that I confess is because uh, I started to solicit writers in um, trying to get my years straight uh, in <laughs> fall 2020 uh, and did heavy editing in spring of 2021 So it wasn't quite as on the horizon as much as it is now. Uh, So I was really thinking about um, uh, journalism to come and what could we learn from covering that, covering that campaign. And I I hope, I hope the book stimulates journalists and readers to think about that a little bit. Um, And, and, and Trump, while I said the, the presidency and his campaigns were so unusual, um, I really wanted to get to the 30,000-foot level, which I'm not sure we did, uh, and say, what are the broader questions here about journalism, not just about Trump? Several people in the book um, did say that the coverage of Trump is going to be the downfall of journalism. Uh, I don't agree with that, but they are people who said, hey, you're talking about wanting to get the straitjacket off. It's already been taken off, and the inmates are running the asylum, uh, and they were concerned about it, which I think was a good warning to us. And also um, the the question of how 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 do we do better well, it was directly addressed by Frank Sesno of GW, who uh, really was the first Washington pres- presence for CNN. And uh, one of the things that Frank said, and I thought of it today <clears throat> when the president spoke about Ukraine, was: Do we ever think about? Um, um the, the outcomes, for example, this is my example, not Frank's, when the president was talking about spending many more billions of dollars for Ukraine, um, <clears throat> what, what, what effect will that have on our economy? How, how do we afford that? And I'm sure someone will raise that question, but it is not front and center. And it made me think just today that Frank was right. Outcomes, not just not just the rock that was thrown in Miami at eight o'clock at night, but but the bigger picture is something that journalists have a really hard time focusing on. I guess we would be historians if we knew how to focus on it, but it's worth a try,
1: sure, sure, sure. Uh, and then last thing, Jerry. Um, what else are you working on, or do you see <clears throat> potential or or perhaps have plans to? do do another version like this where you gather essays from working journalists. It seems to have gone pretty smoothly this time. <laughs> do you hope to, to, to be able to uh, do it again, perhaps?
0: Uh, they might be, they might be tired of my asking at this point. <laughs> they they'd probably tell me they have other things to do. I know I'm, I'm fascinated by something quite different. Um, and that is one of the courses I teach is in multicultural journalism. And I've asked, um, students to reflect on a few movies, um, uh, such as black, like me, which is the long ago story of a Southern newspaper man who dyed his skin, uh, to see what it was like to be black in the South. And, uh, maybe it's because I'm from the North and came with, uh, preconceived ideas, but many of the students have been writing about how their own families had unconscious racism in them. Um, one student said, gee, my grandma is certainly not a racist, but she had an Aunt Jemima-type uh, utensil in her kitchen. So I've asked a few of them if this summer I can interview them about how they have ch- have they changed. And I'd like to talk to a few people in uh, scholarly work to ask, have Southern kids changed or am I just coming to it as a snooty northerner who had preconceived ideas? So that's the next idea floating around in my head.
1: Well, yeah, uh, and we will link to your Twitter account and your your website and all of that so folks can keep up uh, with everything that you're working on. And again, um, the book Covering Politics in the Age of Trump, uh, again, it's a collection of essays by working journalists covering politics, published in 2021 by LSU Press. Jerry, thanks so much for your time today.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it.